Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast. On this episode of our Valentine series, we're looking at couples where an arranged marriage of a monarch led to unforeseen consequences. Feelings. But unfortunately, they were not reciprocated. We've invited historians Leia Redmond Chang and Andrea Zubich to talk about the unrequited feelings of Catherine de' Medici towards Henry II of France and Catherine of Braganza's towards Charles II. Another episode of Catherine's. Kiss me, Kate, indeed. Or in this case, don't kiss me. Welcome back, Leia. Catherine and Henry II. So theirs was a completely arranged marriage. Yes. Why was this arranged? It was arranged because Catherine's, well, let's call him her uncle. He was actually a distant cousin, but her uncle, <laughs> Clement VII, was making a deal with her future father-in-law, King Francis I. Again, you know, Francis has his eyes on territories in Italy. And he wants to effectively win what were called the Italian Wars against the Habsburgs, against Spain, which, you know, by that time was, was Habsburg. And so he, he, you know, he tries to do it through war and he tries to do it through marriage. So marrying Henry, who at the time was the second son, the Duke of Orléans, to Catherine was one way to get at these Italian territories. So both of them are 14. Henry is Francis's second son and also his least favorite son. Oh. I know. <laughs> it's, it's sad. But, you know, Was there a chart? A story behind it. Or some sort? <laughs> I think there might have been a chart. I think there might have been a chart. <laughs> yes, his third son was actually his favorite. And huh? then came the Dauphin, his firstborn son, and then Henry. It's sad. I just think that Henry and Francis had completely opposite personalities. So, you know, Henry, he's a dutiful son. He doesn't like his dad, but he he obeys his father. I mean, he didn't really have a choice. And I don't think he's particularly looking forward to that marriage, but he understood the political, certainly the territorial advantage of, of that marriage. But by the time that Henry is 14, he's already, you know, falling in love with his mistress. Diane de Poitiers, who's 20 years older than him and who probably helped convince him that this marriage with Catherine de' Medici was going to be a good one. You know, marriage at the time was an entirely political arrangement. So, you know, the idea that you would be completely in love with somebody else, another woman, while, you know, marrying a different woman was, you know, completely normal. The marriage isn't about love. You know, it's mm. just about political alliance and it's about children. That's, yeah. that's the point of the marriage. So he's distant from the very beginning. Now, what's interesting is that Catherine is not distant, right? You hear this story that Henry didn't love her, though he's quite respectful of her, but she was passionately in love with Henry. And that does seem to be the case. And I often wonder, well, why? Why? Mm -hmm. Why did she, why was she in love with him? But we don't have a lot of information about that. You know, it might've been because she was an, orphan, you know, coming into France. She was orphaned from the from from the time she was a few weeks old. She does have close Medici family, but she she is a little bit in this limbo state, you know, where she doesn't have like a, a close immediate family. She comes to France and, and I, you know, think that Catherine wants to belong. She wants to belong to the to the court of France and, and be an insider. And so, you know, her desire to be loved by Henry is in part because she wants a good marriage. She wants to be a good wife and she wants that to be reciprocated so that she feels secure in her place at court. And especially because 
for the first 10 years of her marriage, she has trouble conceiving. Mm. So the only thing that can really assure her place at the French court, her continued stability during those 10 years would be the love and respect of her father-in-law and the love and respect of her husband. So again, there's this question of displaced emotion, right? Like is Catherine truly in love with Henry because the man himself or because of everything that he represents, you know, her own sense of security and a future at the French Mm. court? Yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting because you can't imagine, but then it does happen, but you can't imagine somebody being in love with somebody who's so cold and openly taking mistresses, having other children when you can't conceive. So it's hard to put yourself in her position. Yeah, and it does make you wonder about, you know, how our own ideas of love form Mm. um, now as compared to 500 years ago. I mean, here is a man, he is her husband, and certainly young girls were trained to to believe that they owed, you know, all of their respect and obedience to this man who was going to be their husband. And, And you can see that even in Catherine's letters before she gets to France, when she's, you know, 13, 14 years old. She's writing about her future husband with this immense amount of respect, like she's practicing and articulating this form of obedience. So so you know that she internalized this. So, you know, on some level, you you do wonder if, if some of these young women, when you see these imbalanced marriages, if they internalize it as something that's wrong with them, you know, a kind of gaslighting almost, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, if he doesn't love me, it must be my fault. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Which, of course, would push them to be even more obedient or respectful or deferential. And to all evidence, she was she was a a very good wife. Catherine stays a little bit quiet as as the wife until the death of, of Henry II. You know, that court is really dominated by the relationship between Henry II and Diane de Poitiers. And, and Catherine is a little bit on the sidelines. When they have children, what kind of a a mother is she and what kind of a father is he? So they're great parents. (laughs) Yeah, those were very, very lucky children, actually. I think Catherine is also, in some ways, an emotional person. You know, we tend to think of her as calculating. Hmm. And I think she was. I mean, she was incredibly intelligent. Catherine de' Medici was an incredibly intelligent person. And so unlike Mary, Queen of Scots, Catherine is always thinking two or three steps ahead so she is calculating, but she is also emotional. And I, and I think that that love that she feels for her children is very genuine. Sometimes it gets deployed in a manipulative way, but I think that it's effective in part because there is a sincerity there. Mm. You know, I think she really did love her children in part because it had been so difficult for her to have them. You know, so when they do arrive, it is just the rush of relief and emotion that she must have felt for them is probably, you know, sort of difficult to, certainly difficult to quantify. You you can't even really articulate it very well. But the other, to me, extremely touching thing is that Henry II was very involved in his children's lives and he was extremely concerned for their welfare. So when the children are born and after 10 years of being barren, all of a sudden, you know, Catherine is incredibly fruitful. <laughs> she yeah. has 10 children in rapid succession. And so, you know, they had to figure out what to do with them. And every parent's worst nightmare is that their children were going to get sick and die. So 
what Henry and Catherine decide to do is create a royal nursery that was separate. It was miles away from the main court and they called it the little court or the mini court. I like to call it the mini court. And so all the royal children were put there. There were other aristocratic children from foreign courts or from within France who were also raised at this court. So they had lots of friends. There were lots of children. And the idea was to keep them away, all these children away from contagion and from disease. But we have a lot of letters from Henry writing to the governess and the the governor about their children's welfare. He wanted regular reports, both to him and to Catherine. He wanted to know all the little details, you know, when they were weaned, how how they were teething, you know, how they were, sometimes they had accidents, how they were recovering. You know, he did not leave that just to his mistress, Diane de Poitiers, or to his wife. He wanted to know every detail. There's one incredibly touching story, which was when Claude was born. Claude is the second daughter. He names her after his mother, Claude of France. And Henry lost his mother when he was about five years old. And to all evidence, he had been very close with her. So it's really interesting that he names this baby after his mother. He refused to part with her for a little while. She stayed with him or with, you know, in in the main royal palace for a full month longer than the other royal children after they were born before she got sent to the little court. He just seemed to have a little bit of trouble sending her away. So, you know, I don't know why that is, but yeah, he was a very involved, very affectionate father. And I think this is because he did not have a good relationship with his own father. And so he gave his children what he didn't receive from his own, yeah. from his own father. Yeah. Do you see Catherine and Henry's relationship changing now that they're they're parents together? Again, he's very respectful, at least publicly, to Catherine. Mm. You know, she's crowned, he elevates her, he makes her regent when he goes off to war. It's very respectful and it's very clear that he's pleased with her ability to have these children, that he recognizes that she's doing her duty. But he is 100% devoted to Diane de Poitiers. I mean, 110%. (laughs) Yeah. Like that was just never going to go away. I think Diane fulfills a number of roles for Henry. I mean, to us, it's creepy, but there's clearly a very passionate, you know, love affair, but there's also kind of a maternal one as well. Mm -hmm. She was really his everything. And for a boy that, you know, just had a very traumatic childhood, for your audience, he was sent as a political hostage to Spain in his father's place when he was seven. And he stayed in that prison for four years, actually. So, you know, he was completely traumatized by this. He needed a lot emotionally, mm. you know, after that. Yeah. And and Diane de Poitiers gave him whatever mm. it was that he needed. I always yeah. think maybe because they were the same age, it was not a great thing. Because usually we'll say, oh, they were the same age, so that's a good thing because yeah. the big age difference is bad. But you, you're right, as in saying, Henry needed that nurturing and a 14-year-old can't really give that. And they're too young, right? Mm. When, they're, when they yeah. get together, when they're, when they're married, they're, they're, still, they're still just children. And mm. I actually think that was the issue with Mary, Queen of Scots, and her first husband, Francis II. You know, they were raised together from the time they were very young children. 
you know, then they get married and suddenly they're supposed to be having sex. <laughs> it was like her brother, you know, not only they're young, they're, they are basically family. So, you know, that relationship can't change on a dime like that. I don't think that that was destined for success again, just because of the conditions in which they, mm. they met each other. But you're right. That might be true with Henry and Catherine as well, that they're too young and they can't give each other for many years emotionally what each of them needed. Yeah. So Henry... You know, he mm. dies in this horrible jousting accident. It just, it's horrible. How does Catherine mourn him? Okay, well, so first of all, I think Catherine is shattered, you know, just shattered. But her original, her first thought is that her son, who at the time is 16 years old, is going to inherit the throne and he is not ready. He is not ready. And his wife at the time, Mary Queen of Scots, is not ready. They had assumed they had, you know, a decade or so, at least a few years, right? So that is the first concern is how do you shore up that new reign so that it is stable when the death of her husband was so unexpected? So, you know, for the first 40 days or so, she's she's distracted because the other complicated situation is that death of Henry II happens at the wedding celebrations of his daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, who's just married Philip II of Spain. And Spain and France had been at war for generations, for decades. So suddenly there's this new peace. No one knows with the death of Henry II if the peace is going to hold. And so, you know, there's there's just a ton of instability. So Catherine's first thought is, how do we achieve stability? So she doesn't go into mourning right away. The normal behavior for a dowager queen uh, would have been to take 40 days of mourning almost immediately. But she, she doesn't do this. She stays, you know, with the new king for several weeks. And finally, only, you know, only, you know, I think it's about a month after Henry's death, does she finally take her official mourning. And she starts to wear black, which was not actually the color of mourning in France. The color of mourning in France was white. So it's a bit of an unusual choice. The color of mourning in Italy is black. So, you know, it, it's interesting that she sort of embraces this kind of Italian role, right? She's kind of signaling visually that she is an Italian queen rather than a French one, or that she's sort of hewing to this Italian side rather than the French one. So it's interesting that she does that. And I, I think it's really up for speculation about why it was that mm. she made that choice. Some kings die and the wife gets rid of the mistress. Does that happen with Catherine? Yes. Thank you for reminding me. That that <laughs> does happen. <laughs> Poor Diane, actually, you know. Yeah, she basically tells Diane that she doesn't want to see her again. She makes a trade. The famous trade that she makes with Diane is that she takes the Chateau of Chenonceau, right, from Diane, which if you haven't seen it, it's just the most beautiful chateau. And my guess is Catherine had her eye on that for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and instead, she gives her the chateau of Chaumont. So it's a trade. It's not like she just took it from her. She, she made a trade. And that was within her rights to do that. But she does tell Diane that she doesn't want to see her again. And so uh, Diane does withdraw, you know, to her own private estates and, and then dies, you know, several years later. So that is the end of that, that <laughs> triangle. <laughs> there was definitely three in that marriage. 
There were three in that marriage. It was a bit crowded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a bit crowded. Yes, to you know, use a famous a famous phrase. It was it was a bit crowded. But sometimes I think Diane was of considerable help to mm. that marriage, and it may have been one of the reasons why the marriage survived. Yeah, because Diane, you know, there was a time where. There, there was some question about whether or not Catherine should be sent back to Italy because she was barren, you know, during those first 10 years of marriage. And Diane at that point seemed to behave like her ally. You know, she tried to help Catherine get pregnant and there were political reasons to do so. You know, Catherine had, had shown that she was willing to accept Diane's role in that marriage. And it was not clear at all that another woman or that woman's family would have been okay with Diane's presence. So on some level, you know, Catherine was a political asset to Diane. And then once they have all of these children, and there are many, many children, and all children are needy, these children were very needy, you know, it's helpful to have somebody else who is very powerful and who can help get the kids what they need. And I think everyone kind of had their hands full with the, those children, including Diane de Poitiers. Yeah. Now let's go forward a century and adjust our compasses a bit more north towards England. We have as our guest Andrea Zuvich, the creator of the hashtag KeepItStuart and hashtag StuartSaturday. Now let's talk about one of the saddest love stories of the Stuart era, the marriage of Catherine of Braganza to Charles II. Charles II and Catherine of Braganza, so they fit into the unrequited love category. Yes. Can you tell us why is. it's unrequited? Yes. Well... Charles was with Barbara Villers, and she was his mistress from 1660. And unfortunately, she was already married to a man named Roger Palmer, who was a quite a, a nice chap from all accounts. He just had the misfortune of, of marrying a woman who didn't really love him at all. So he had to suffer along while she engaged in one adulterous relationship after another. Uh, she was previously with a man called Philip Stanhope, who was the second Earl of Chesterfield, and he was her great first love. And of course, all first loves are uh, quite momentous. And that was the same for Barbara. She had things end with with Philip due to his dueling and his, his not wanting to marry her because she wasn't wealthy enough or uh, socially good enough, really, for him. He went off and searched for a, a wealthy wife, and she was married to Roger. But there were some news that the king, Charles, who was in exile on the continent, uh, required funds. He was always perpetually in need of funds. So uh, Roger and his wife, Barbara, went over and they gave him a thousand pounds, I believe it was. Charles could have not failed to notice how beautiful this Barbara was. Soon enough, they had embarked on their own adulterous relationship. The king was not married at the time, so he was he was a bachelor at this time. Uh, but Barbara was the married person. He gets restored to the throne in 1660. About a year later, Barbara has her first child. And uh, we're not really sure exactly who the father is, but it seems likely it was Charles II, in my opinion, because she got married around the time of the Restoration and his return to England. In 1661, she was pretty much firmly the queen in all but name. She was the king's main mistress and the mother of his child. 
It would have been interesting if perhaps Barbara's marriage with Roger could have been annulled and she would have married the king. That would have been more perhaps. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Could be. Yes. But unfortunately, she was not powerful enough on the, you know, the political landscape. She didn't have a huge dowry. All the money really she had was from the king. And he, as I said earlier, always needed money. So he needed another source of money. His advisor, the Earl of Clarendon, Edward Hyde, he was on the lookout for a potential bride. And there were many in in Europe, but he focused on the Braganza family of Portugal. There was the Infanta of Portugal, her name is Catarina, and she was a bit older than Barbara, and she would come with a huge dowry, including the ports of Tangier, and and that's in North Africa, and Bombay, which is now Mumbai in India. So it was a very lucrative marriage, political marriage, a, a political alliance. So they were married in 1662. She came over. She had heard that there was something going on with him and one of these English women. And uh, he went down to Portsmouth and greeted her. They were married. And she was very sheltered. She, she was a, a sheltered, innocent, very good woman. Unfortunately, she had no experience with many things. I think she was brought up in a convent-like situation. She was very ill-prepared for the restoration court that her husband uh, ruled over. And uh, she had to pick a lady of a bedchamber, and that's a very prestigious position for, for someone to have in the royal household. And Barbara somehow thought it was a good idea to put her own name forward as the first lady of the bedchamber, to be a lady-in-waiting to her lover's new wife. So you can see it's all very complicated and excessively dramatic. So she can literally say, this is now how your husband likes it. Yeah. (laughs) And she she was the type to say things to um, really to hurt Catherine. So that wasn't that wasn't very nice. But it's really strange because we always have this idea of the other woman being the person who comes along after a man is married. So you have a husband and wife, and then the mistress is the other woman. But in this case, Barbara was the de facto wife, and Catherine was the other woman. And so Barbara was only just taking her domain, really, because that was that was her man. So, <laughs> so that is, it's completely the other way around. Unfortunately, Catherine very soon fell for the charms of her husband. Charles was a very charming man. He said that that he was an ugly man. He would say, oh, odds fish, I am an ugly fellow. But he had this this wonderful personality that would make women just melt. He was very good at that. Evidently so. (laughs) He had had it. He he was very, um, very sensual. Uh, And Catherine, without any any knowledge of men at all, she, she did totally fall for him. Unfortunately, this opened her up for pain, great pain. So she did, she did suffer a lot of heartbreak with him because of that love. Because, of course, no matter how nice he was to her in the years to come, he was never faithful. And he was, he was very, very bad. Actually, when, when Barbara was pushing for the, this position of first lady of the bedchamber, and he took Barbara's side 
And Catherine was not having it. She said it was it was completely inappropriate for that woman to be near her. And I can understand that. She wouldn't want I wouldn't want anyone like that around. It's it's all a, a convoluted mess, really. But, it's almost uh, as if I know that we presented in another segment the story of this is a love story, and it's true. Charles the Third and Camilla are the true love story. But if you just take this kind of as a parallel from the 1660s and 70s of how it was in the 70s and 80s of the 20th century, this is Charles marries Diana, and then Camilla becomes her lady of the bedchamber. Would you say that's a fair comparison? That would be more, yeah. It's kind of, ah, uh, no. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. And I would think it would be uncomfortable for most people involved in that situation. That's it. Catherine had uh, a great love for Charles. And he, you know, to his credit, he he kind of loved her. He was very fond of her. I think that's that's what we can say. And he did defend her when they want, when other people, other courtiers wanted her to be divorced and sent back to Portugal. And he didn't. He stood by her and didn't divorce her. And we know everything that happened after that. <laughs> but it was a very tragic love story because she could never have his children. Um, and she would have seen all his children with other women, all these other women. But she couldn't. And it was another example of this terrible heartbreak that many of these Stuart consorts and sovereigns had. Yeah. Did she ever conceive? Yes. I believe she conceived two or three times. It's not very certain. Mm. But um, she went to take the waters at Tunbridge and hoping that there would be some way to conceive and produce an heir because that was her job. And yeah. And uh, it, it's very sad because there was this saying, which was really ugly, this saying that, that that was bandied about. They had had a problem with Tangiers, which was a huge liability. There were, I, I think um, one of Charles's sons was sent to Tangier to, to control the situation and developed that sickness with bad water. I don't know. I don't think dysentery? it's not dysentery. No. And uh, he got that and died. So um, Tangier was, was a very bad situation. And they were going around saying Tangier, Dunkirk, Tangier, and a barren queen. That's terrible. So those are three things. That, so politically and personally, it was looking very bad. And so it, it's all very complex and sad about Charles's relationship with Catherine. When he died, she asked for his forgiveness because she couldn't go in there and see him because it was too, too terrible for her to see him dying. He remarked something to the effect of, poor woman, she has nothing to be sorry for. And that's true. And when he died, she became the Queen Dowager and she ended up living in Somerset House. And she lived there until the reign of William and Mary when uh, she wasn't feeling very welcome anymore. Of course, she was Catholic and that was not a, a happy place for Catholics at that time. Not with the glorious revolution painted hall no. and all the paintings. No, it was know. a very bad time for Catholics. We see this time and again throughout the 17th century. We have this terrible persecution of Catholics and and then they get a bit more power again and then persecution and it, it's like that time and again. In 1685, we had the uh, French king, Louis XIV, um, doing the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And uh, so we had many Huguenot uh, refugees coming into the country because they had something in common with 
many English people. They were Protestants. And with that shared religious ideology, they were able to get on for the most part. But it was throughout the throughout Europe at this time, there were still these troubles, these religious tensions between Catholic and Protestant. And she went back home, didn't she? Uh, she, she, did. went she went to back to Portugal. And she became very, she was quite wealthy because she, uh, she was very shrewd about her, her financial affairs. And I believe she became regent for some time and, and took over that, the country for some time. So Talk she was, about second she was quite, act. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I, I'd like to learn more about her. But, you know, uh, there have been some biographies written about her. Um, I, I quite enjoyed Sarah Beth Watkins' biography recently, um, I think three years ago or so or more. Very, very interesting. No, she, yeah, she needs to, again, be spoken about a bit more. She didn't leave kids, but she also brought tea to the country. So that's... Yay! <laughs> Thank you for that. Very good. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Yes. Yeah. Samuel Gray, yeah. <laughs> she was cat- a very interesting woman. Very, yeah, I, I really like her. I found her quite an interesting person to research. A great thank you to Leah and Andrea for coming onto the podcast today. And thank you listeners for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque podcast or If It Ain't Baroque history. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and reignoflondon.com. See you next time.